0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Before we jump into the letter to the Ephesians, I want to talk about the prison epistles very briefly. We have four New Testament books that were called prison or captivity or other titles, sometimes captivity letters. But these four letters were written when Paul was under arrest. And how do we know that? Great question. Paul writes about it in each of these books. So if you see the slide in those references I have in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 and 4, verse 1, and so forth. Philippians 1, verse 7 and 12 and four. He mentions being in prison. And so we tie these stories back to the record of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Apostles as we know it, and we see how this story unfolds. One of the challenges of doing this big book cover-to-cover series is how do you take the timeline isn't like it is in your Bible. Acts covers this huge time span from Pentecost all the way till the end where Paul is going off to Rome, and then these letters are interspersed during that time, sometimes written later and so it's a bit of a puzzle and one reason that I encourage you as we go through this big book to try and get the big picture on how these things fold together. So each of these letters. Now some of you already know the pastoral epistles which are the 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, those are pastoral because Paul is writing them to the pastoral leadership of that church or group of churches. Those are also sometimes called prison letters. We'll talk about that when we get there, a little different type of incarceration. But think about the personality of Paul the Apostle who was uh, ready fire aim. He was tenacious when he was persecuting Christians before he came to Christ and afterwards the guy is indomitable. He's traveling. He's taking these journeys that are so arduous compared. We complain about a long TSA line. He spends months at sea going to one port. And if you've been at sea in those old ships you know it follows all that. So it's a very different world and his tenacity of taking the gospel, following what Christ commissioned him to do is incredible. My theory it's just a pencil theory, the only reason we have some of these letters written is because he couldn't go there and he was incarcerated. So we had to write it down. So we have a large part of our New Testament because Paul couldn't go he had to sit down and write. And so we have the God's sense of sovereignty in these stories. While in prison, he's writing letters. And, oh, by the way, he's leading, leading prisoners to Christ on occasion. So a fascinating character in the life and study of Paul. Um, the prison letters, in, it, the prison captivity in Acts 24 We have a two-year period before he goes to Rome. And we talked about that briefly in our survey of Acts. And it's probably these came when he was in Caesarea. When you go to Israel, because as you know, it is God's will for you to go to Israel. Uh, Typically, the first stop we make after we get you situated our first night is Caesarea. And if you look at the map of Israel, the Mediterranean Sea over here, this little tiny piece of land, no bigger than Connecticut. And there's a Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a Caesarea Philippi in the north, a different Caesarea. But these were probably when he's there. And this is uh, one of my favorite places. We go to this um, amphitheater and we open our tour. And I read this section in Acts 28 about him preaching the gospel. And from there he's going to go to Rome so more than likely, this is where they were written, we can't prove it, but they're, they're written over that two-year period and then they're, they're shared by hand, carry, uh, to these different churches. Let's talk a little bit about how you put your arm around Ephesians because it's a different letter in a lot of ways. Some of the scholars that I respect, F.F. F. Bruce, anything he's written I think is on my shelf or on my computer, he says uh, it is the quintessence. And it's a word we don't use a lot that means the most perfect embodiment of something or something that's been distilled down to the essence. The quintessence uh, of Paulinism. This is, this is Paul. C.H. Uh, Dodd in his commentary says the crown of Paulinism. And Hendrickson, a little bit more wordy, says uh, Eph- Ephesians has been called the divinest composition of man. The distilled essence of the Christian religion. The most Authoritative and consummate compendium of the Christian faith, full to the brim with thoughts and doctrines sublime and momentous. And so, these scholars who write these large commentaries, this is their opening salvo about what this little letter is about. Six chapters is the way we break it out, um, and yet there's so much in this book. It's amazing. It's hard to pick a theme. For The book of Ephesians and if if you read commentators and scholars that know a lot more than me They have a hard time and they acknowledge it. It's hard to say there's one theme when we read Romans It's about the righteousness of God When we read the Gospels, we know it's about that he came to serve. We know it's about the kingdom It's hard to put your hand around this short little book and say that one sentence So let me give you sort of a sketch of interest Uh, Again, there's no correction in this letter 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he's, he's telling them what they're doing wrong and how they're off the rails in Galatians. you got another gospel, you're fools. And not so in the book of Ephesians. And so when you sew together some of the overviews and try to put your hand around them, it's really hard to say the book is about X. Um, the, the, the scope of Christology in chapter 1 is mind-blowing. The pronoun for God, the divine pronoun, he, him, the word Christ or God is in every verse, sometimes more than once, except two times. In one chapter, in 23 verses. How do you write every sentence the way we would count sentence, Talking about God, Christ, the Father, the Spirit. And so he leads with this overstatement of Christology. You can't really overstate it. Um, we also, and we're going to look at this in a moment, the immeasurable blessings that the believer receives. Paul speaks about this here in an interesting way. The impact it had him personally, which in 2 Corinthians we get some of that, but we don't always hear about what's going on in Paul's life, and we do in this little book to the Ephesians. Its brevity, however, lacks no depth, which shows to go at the old Churchillian statement about you know, how long does it prepare him, take him to prepare a talk. And the algorithm was the shorter his talk, the more time it took him. And so he was going to speak for ten minutes, it took him you know hundreds of hours compared to for an hour. And what we see here in Ephesus and Ephesians is this brief but deep book. The scope of theological terms is remarkable, and something I want to make a, just a side side quick comment about um, we 're into exposition here at Stonebridge the the guest men that we have teach here are, I'm I'm committed. They've got to be theologically grounded um, because the problem with so many churches today has been a void and a vacation from theology and experience and observations and all that are fine to talk about. But if it's not rooted and grounded in theology, you're going to get off. You're going to get off in the weeds. And that's precisely what happens to these churches that we'll read about. Um, some key terms that, and again, this is just a snapshot of them. I went through and, and, and stopped because I couldn't, you know those word art, word art programs you can do where you put something, I, I couldn't fit all, it was like, it was just noise. So I, could, I had to stop. So I just did them in a list. Will of God, every spiritual blessing, chose, predestined, adopted, redemption, forgiveness, trespass, grace, mystery of His will. The kind intention of His will. I love that phrase, the kind intention of His will. Inheritance, the message of truth or the gospel of your salvation. Believe, sealed pledge, the spirit of wisdom, enlightened, the hope of His calling, workmanship. We'll talk about this in some length. Um, Separated, excluded, brought near, strangers, aliens, fellow citizens, on and on it goes. This book is chock full of terms that are a deep study in and of themselves. So again, its brevity is not a lack of depth. Um, I read through, I don't know, a dozen or so introductions trying to find a good, you know how I usually show you the Boa and Wilkinson paragraph. I just didn't like any of them. So I did something very dangerous. I wrote my own. So you know, if you take a picture of it, you know, delete it later. But you can look at it for a minute. Uh, I'm not ready to say this is the best one, but this is my uh, uh, feeble attempt at trying to explain this little book called Ephesians. Paul paints a remarkable picture of Christ's work from eternity past into eternity future. Lavishly he sketches the theological framework and beauty of God's love towards sinful man, mankind and presents the gospel in unforgettable terms for by grace you have been saved. Then he marshals the practical impact, or we might say the changes, that accompany the believer's new relationship. Interlaced, Paul briefly explains his personal role in God's plan and hastens to teach the Ephesians and us what Christ's church is to be. Uh, I think it's a pretty fair synthesis of this very deep, short book. And so that's why I say it's hard to put a sentence around this. Some say it's about the church. Well, yeah, but that's not all it's about. Sometimes it's about love. That's a predominant theme, but that's not all it's about. So it's an interesting book for those of you who study at some length and in your casual reading. Uh, I urge you to, you know, first of the year, we all have a lot of ambitions to do these reading plans. Um, I use these special pens that, that don't smear so much. And I've got a blue, a, bra- a black, and a red one, and a pencil. That's all I use. I can't do the, the precept is like, mm, it's too much. It's too much for me. I can't handle all that. So I have my own little system of what I use and it works for me. It doesn't matter what you do. Does it get you in the word? And for me, having a real book and a, a, those imp, instruments and a ruler, it helps me see things that I don't normally see. And when I see the repetitions, I'm circling them. I'm connecting the dots. I have arrows. I write in the margin. As my friend said, Michael, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but you've colored most of it. So, you know, whatever works for you. I want to walk through some of the passages. We can't do all of them, obviously, in the time allotted. But I want to walk through some that, to me, are standouts and hopefully will encourage you as you read the book on your own. We've already mentioned chapter 1, verse 3. Let me read it from the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ. Understanding this verse, you can't understand it. You just have to comprehend what it's saying. Um, First of all, let's take another sidebar about blessing. When we say bless God, uh, we're not doing something magical or religious. Blessing God is attributing to God who he is or what he's done. When you bless God, you're talking about who he is or what he's done. It's that simple. First Chronicles chapter 29 is a chapter you should have dog-eared in your Bible, 29, 10 and following, because David blesses God. It's one of the most remarkable passages about what he says to God. And you, you read it and go, oh, that's what it means. We say, God bless you or bless God. It's religious language that means nothing. To bless God is to say something about who he is or what he's done. So when I'm blessing God I'm saying thank you that you forgive me. Thank you that you're perfect. Thank you that you're patient. Thank you that you're holy. Thank you that you're just. And the injustices we see on this planet that we we wonder why would you allow this? Ultimately you're a God of justice. You're attributing back to God who He is and what He's done. Now let me ask you a simple question. Why is that helpful? Does God need to hear it? when we bless God we're reminding ourselves what He's done. So when I read this verse He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can't get any more. This differentiates material blessings which certainly are part of God's program. If you read about the life of Abraham, he was blessed materially. Job was blessed materially. I think it's a fair assessment when you and I have a job, when we make money, when we we prosper, to say God has blessed me. But that's really a small tip compared to what these blessings are. That you have been forgiven. That you are loved. That His grace is immeasurable. That His mercy knows no limit. That He will always take you back when you sin. That He loves you no matter what you've done or will do. That he's holy, perfect, righteous, just, omniscient, om- omnipresent, omnipotent. Just to think about who, what does that do to me when I think about that? I'm nothing. He's everything. And it puts me in perspective when I'm worried about the stuff of life. Am I going to get into the school? What's going to happen with the semester? Are they going to have classes? Do I have to go back to work? Cindy and I were talking in the car coming up here about three things I've never seen in my lifetime that are happening in the next 20 days. Politically speaking. It's crazy. And I have to remind myself God's sovereign. One Lord. One King. One Jesus. And to keep that in perspective so when we're blessing God we're reminding ourselves of who He is and what He's done so we don't forget and get consumed with the horizontal. Which by the way that's good theology. We have legitimate wants and needs in life. We want to be healthy. We want to be financially good stewards. We want to be happy in our marriage. We want our kids to love Christ. Those are good things. But that's not all of it. There's a spiritual aspect to this. I think most Christians, the extreme of course is to become mystical or to be a mystic. That's an extreme. The other is to become where I contend to be is sort of, you know, a deist. I believe God, but I don't understand or see sometimes how He works. I'm I'm kind of of immune to that. It's my nature. I'm looking more at the facts, at the theology. And there's a danger in that. Which is why I think Jesus said to worship in spirit and in truth. It's both sides. And you might lean one way or the other. Well, let's continue. Let's look at another one that um, hinges on this. And this is chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Him also After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, stop for just a second there, you have to hear it and embrace it. So after you've heard this gospel, that He lived, that He died, that He was buried, three days later He overcame the grave and was resurrected. He then spent time on the earth and eventually He was ascended into heaven. That gospel, you've heard the message of truth, having believed, he says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now for those of you uh, Bible nerds, you just heard a Trinitarian explanation of the gospel. that God, the sovereign elected, that Jesus Christ was the one who redeemed and the Holy Spirit sealed Don't miss it. This is not, oh, by the way, Paul is very deliberate about what he's saying here. It was God the Father who chose, who elected. We'll talk about that in a moment. It was Christ who redeemed you. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you. But the Holy Spirit is the one that seals you. And as I've argued many times over the decades, without a Trinitarian Godhead, there is no salvation. It takes a Trinitarian doctrine to understand how we are saved So this Jesus has done the redemption work, the Holy Spirit seals it. Now you all probably have heard the stories about this word sealed. It's one of my favorite Greek words, spragidzo. It just sounds fun to say spragidzo. That this seal is authenticity. This seal is identification. It's only used three times in the New Testament, here and twice in 2 Corinthians. And it always means the same thing. When you travel today, I mean we used to, pre-9-11, we walked on a plane. You went down the uh, jetway with your husband or wife and kissed them goodbye and patted them on the head. After 9 11, we have this screening process. Now you've got to be, you know, have your temperature. And uh, I assume very shortly we're going to have to prove we had the vaccine or one of the vaccines. So things are changing. Imagine if you had a, a, a platinum passport that you could walk through an airport. With a carry-on, with anything you want in it, bypass the lines, bypass TSA, bypass the flight attendant, and go sit in any first-class seat you want on any plane in the world and not pay a dime. That's the seal of redemption. you, you You have access because it's authenticated by God. Your salvation is secure. He chose you. Christ redeemed you. Holy Spirit, we might say, proves it. Holy Spirit authenticates it. Holy Spirit puts a seal on it that no one can take away. It's a remarkable, remarkable concept that we are sealed. Ephesians 2, verse 1 is a, a verse. I've heard sermons preached on this one verse, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I am astonished the number of walking dead fans. Uh, how many, um, what, what, it's, like, it's like a law and order, like 10 iterations of it now. I have no idea. I think Cindy and I watched like one or two and went, what? Uh, you know, I don't know what our culture's fascination with the walking dead and zombies. I don't know what it is, but there's probably some deep theology there. But anyway, um, you were dead. You were dead. You couldn't fog a mirror spiritually speaking. You can't resurrect yourself. You can't come back to life. You can't rejuvenate yourself. You're dead. You're positioned before Christ. Dead, no pulse, no brainway activity. You're a corpse. It's the cold hard fact in our face. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. We're children of wrath, destined for destruction, Paul writes. That's hard doctrine. As I showed you a couple weeks ago, in Adam's fall, we did all. All of us are depraved. All of us deserve to go to hell in a handbasket. There are none righteous. No, not one. But the good news of the gospel is you respond by faith. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, but God. I remember hearing a sermon by R.C. Sproul years ago that was about this verse. But God. He must have said but God 55 times in that sermon. And he always preached for an hour, godly man. But God, you're dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You're dead. You can't do anything for yourself but God. And that's worth a sermon by R.C. I mean it's, it's to understand this idea. When uh, A friend of ours, uh, the woman who taught Cindy her business uh, about real estate, when I was, um, I don't know, I graduated or something or whatever, she got a pen for me and it was engraved but God, dot, dot, dot. But God. Being rich in mercy. Did you notice the other part? And because of His great love. What's the most familiar verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world. Motivated by love. We're all born dead in sin, but God's rich in mercy. Verses 8-10, to and we know these verses perhaps too well. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. Arguably I would say it's maybe the or one of the most remarkable sentences in the world. Certainly John 3.16 would rate up there, right? Many verses in the Bible. I always hesitate to say this is the most important. This is the best. I don't like the overuse of superlatives. But this is a pretty potent sentence. By grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Now what is interesting here, and this, this is worthy of really about a four-part series, but to understand verse 7 through 10 is so important in Paul's logic, his theology, his theological approach to explaining salvation. In verse 7, he talks about the surpassing riches of his grace. He's got more than you can measure. The bank is overflowing with not only blessings you get, it's overflowing with grace. He's got more grace than we could use, we might say it that way the surpassing riches of His grace, how can He save? Because He loves. God can do this by grace He can save us because we can't be good enough to get to God. Um, when, when, when we're young, I don't know if this is true of all of us, but when we're young we've got this right and wrong thing in our head don't we? When you're kids, you know this, I mean if you've raised children when they're two and they're looking at you about to do something that they know they're not supposed to do. And that's all part of the learning, right? And it's, it's fun to watch when you're a grandparent. <laughs> when you're a parent, you're freaking out about it, you know? But they're trying to decide, am I going to follow my parents' conscience or my want? That's the rub. I think that's sewn so deeply in our thinking and our fabric that we don't have a clue how constrained we are to this right and wrong thing in our head. I don't do this and I do this. And if I do the things I don't, I'm don't, i not supposed to do, I need to do some things I'm not supposed to do. And it's like we've got this set of scales in our head. We don't think through it perhaps, but it's, it's interlaced in our thinking, in our emotions. I did something wrong, well, now I better make up for it. You can't with God. That's the rub. Nothing you can ever do is going to get God's attention. Only what Christ did. Which on the one hand is confounding, on the other hand it's so liberating. If you get it, if you struggle with the right and wrong and do and don't, and am I good enough or not good enough? I'm, I'm living terribly right now he won't forgive me. Well I'm doing the right thing, how come life isn't working for me? That's that set of scales in our head that just messes us up. And the gospel is so beautifully articulated in these verses. Now I want you to see something that most people miss. Verse 10 uh, my friend Ralph Weitz, we were on staff together at a church in Washington, D.C., Virginia, for um, 12 some years together. He was there longer than me. Um, but he said Ephesians 2.10 was the most overlooked verse in the Bible. He might be right. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, you got to tie these verses together if we look at verses eight and nine, not a result of works. His surpassing riches are overwhelming, and you can't do any work to get his attention. Now look at verse 10, or his workmanship. Paul's sewing an argument together here saying, "Nothing you can do is going to be good enough to get any traction with God, but the work you need to do, He did. And you're the workmanship. This word is a beautiful word. It's used of a masterpiece. It's used of, we might think of the, um, I came across something, someone sent me years ago. It was a, a 4K um, 360 camera of the Sistine Chapel. You can zoom in and see the tile in the floor, or you can see you know, God and Adam's fingers coming that close together in 4K resolution. It's an amazing sight. You can look at every feature in that chapel. With the quality, that's a masterpiece. Whether you agree with the theology behind it or not, it's a masterpiece. Um, there are certain pieces of art or homes or uh, a song. Would we, would we debate Amazing Grace as a masterpiece? Would we debate the Handles of Messiah as a masterpiece? There are some things that are just otherworldly. Uh, Paul is saying that you are His workmanship. Your works don't get any traction with God, but His works make you into something otherworldly. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're supposed to do something with what He's done. And this is where it gets very interesting. Um, The problem we all have with this aspect of the salvation the way Paul explains it and depending on, in theology terms we talk about Arminianism and we talk about the Reformation and that's part of it and there's all kind of tentacles. But it comes down to this, what do you have to do to get saved? That's the bottom line question. What do you have to do to be saved? And the Protestant Reformation and what we would call Reformers and Calvinists and what I call Biblicists would say, you believe. You put your faith in. You put your trust in. You believe in Him to do for you what you can never do for yourself. Those who would fall into an Arminian or sometimes called Wesleyan, maybe unfairly, would say, yeah, but you got to work too. you got to do your part. One of my very close family members with rosary clenched in hand many years ago said to me, I know Jesus died for my sins, but I must do my part to atone for them. You're missing the whole point of the gospel. You're missing the whole point of these verses. You can't do. Any. I, I know. I know that, but I have to do my part, and it breaks my heart because it's never enough. And Paul says, if it was, then you could boast about it. Well, this is how you get saved. Do what I do. Live this way. Don't do these things. Do these things, um, and then you're a Christian. But if you don't do them, now we got a real problem. Did you lose your salvation? Were you really a Christian? And we get all in the weeds and the mud very quickly. The core of the gospel in these three verses is so beautiful because faith is, is, I don't get too technical here, it's the way we get it. It's the means by which technically. It's the means by which we appropriate grace. Faith is not a work. I trust in, I believe in, I put my faith in Him to do for me something I cannot do for myself, period. That's faith. And faith is defined and explained and illustrated lots of ways, most of which are poor. The Bible says believe. That's simple enough. Do you believe who he is, who he said he is? Do you trust he lived, he died, he was buried, came back from the dead, he spoke to men and women, thousands saw him, and he was descended into heaven. And he says all those who put their trust in him are given eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and we begin this eternal relationship with Him. And Paul says it in strophes that are so wonderful. In chapter 2 verse 2 he said we formerly walked in sin. And the one who walks in good works now is the one that God prepared. So that's a differential to me. Before we lived we were the walking dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. Nothing you need to make of so Now There's a change in a relationship, and Paul says we're going to do these good works which God prepared before him. Now, the simple thing is you don't work for your salvation, God does the work, you're trusting in His work, you're putting your faith in Him to do for you what you can do for yourself, and that's grace. By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift! Not a result of what you do, but what He's done. And oh, by the way, you're His work. You're His workmanship. I would say a lot of people have not parsed this out. A lot of people are still stuck with how do I know for sure? How do I know if I die where I'm going to spend eternity? These verses are are the solution to the question. He lived, He died, He was buried. He came back from the dead. Any and all who put their trust in Him to do for them what they cannot do for themselves are given eternal life forgiveness of sins, and a new relationship. That's the gospel. The remarkable thing to me about biblical Christianity, compared and contrasted to all world religions, all of them have a system. Islam has pillars. Certain certain churches and denominations have things you do and don't do to show you're a Christian. Um, Certain denominations, you can lose your salvation. I've often said pejoratively I couldn't be part of those churches because I'd have to walk the aisle every Sunday. I am the first person in the room, if you have a really good, and I don't mean like guilt and shame in a cheap way, but if you have a really good communicator who can make you feel guilty and ashamed, I'm ready to walk you out one more time. Early in my Christian life, when I came out of Roman Catholicism, in my case, it was very easy to pull me back to the guilt and shame of not doing what I used to do. Very quickly could go back there. It's like all of a sudden I'm a third grader and I got you know the nun and the priest pointing at me scared me to death. took a long time to differentiate it's not what I do, it's what He's done. Now, here's the quote, risk, and I don't think it's a risk, but that's how we viewed it. Well, then you can live however you want. Not if you understand chapter 2 verse 10. We're created as His workmanship for good works that He's prepared before our time for us to do. Now, figuring those out is another story we'll talk about very briefly. The, the, the rest of the book of Ephesians is going to talk about walk. Five times the word walk is used. Walk in a worthy manner, so forth and so on. And that is the, what you're doing in these works that He's mentioning here. He says, that's the last phrase He says that you should walk in them. And very intentionally, in chapter 4 and following, He's going to mention five ways we walk. And that's where the good works are spelled out, if you will. Salvation is a lavish gift. And it's one that, um, you know, I, I don't know all of you. I don't know if you walked the aisle and prayed the prayer when you were five, or if you grew up in a home that believes it, but you never embraced it. This is the greatest spiritual transaction ever offered to a person. You and I are going to hell in a handbasket. You can't do anything that's going to get God's attention. You are not any better than a murderer. You're not any better than a multiple felony incarcerated person who's headed to death row. You and I are not any better. The ground at Calvary is level. All of us are sinners. We're born into sin. Sure, the way we measure it, well, that's a lot more egregious than my little sin of lust or pornography or avarice or greed or, you know, whatever. My little Petty sin. I can't control my appetite, whatever. I'm not doing those bad things. You know, Jesus is kind of nagging sometimes. You've heard it said, you commit adultery. I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed it. Yikes. Every man in the room's toast. We're dead. It's not looking at a felon in, in, in prison, it's looking at all of us that are headed to death row. And he calls you. He chooses you. A word many don't like. He redeems you through his son's work and he seals it. And nothing can change that seal. And now he says, this is how you live. There's a new life. It's not stop doing these things, it's start doing these things. Sure, there's some stopping involved, but that's not the primary focus. It's walk in the manner worthy of your calling. That's where he's going to go. Well, we must move on. Um, I would say one final thing. Um, Larry Moyer, who some of us know very well. Larry Moyer had a, had a wonderful saying. He said, your good works are a thank you back to God. I like that. Your good works are a thank you. It doesn't get you credit. It doesn't get you points with God. It's just a way of saying, thanks, Lord. I'm willing to walk this way because of what you've done. Simple. A child can understand that. When we do what he wants us to do, we're saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this salvation, so rich and so free. Now, I want to show you something that we've not done before in these big books, and I want to show you brackets. Two passages Acts and Revelation, because they're so interesting with this church at Ephesus. And the first one is in Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 28. And the backstory here is Paul is a Miletus, and he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's going to leave them. And if you remember the story, they're crying at the beach. They don't want him to go. And he's going to go on these journeys. And what Paul says in Luke's record of Acts 20, just part of it, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. "...to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them." As he leaves, he goes, "You, you overseers that we put in place, your job Episcopos, oversee, shepherd, poemon, walk with these people to keep them on the straight and narrow. Because did you notice what the way Paul says it? After my departure, wolves will come in among you and from among your own selves. I tell you, every church I've been in, there's always been some agitator. I remember in one of the churches years and years ago, not here, uh, there was a man, his job was the devil's advocate. He would say, I'm the devil's advocate. And I confronted him one time. I said, where in the Bible does it say you're supposed to be the devil's advocate? And he just smiled at me. And I think he had some rejoined like, well, somebody's got to do it. I said, why? And he'd been there longer than me, which is always a problem. <laughs> They're going to outlive you. And I said, if you're so upset about all these things, why do you come here? If your job is to come in and point out everything wrong and... Now I wouldn't say he particularly was one of these people, but what I'm saying is I've seen it at every level. Those within can be agitators and they can be factious and divisive. Paul talks about dealing with factious and divisive people in the church. And here he's saying, this is before he's writing this letter, okay? Acts 2, Acts 20. Now, let's fast forward. What did he tell him? Guard the church, watch out for false teaching. Fair enough? Now watch what he says in Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 to 4. I know your deeds and your toil. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus. I know your toil, your deeds, your toil and perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. That's good, right? You're doing good. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles. They did what Paul told them to do. And they are not and have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured For my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Boy, it sounds great. This is a great attaboy on the back of the church of Ephesus until we read the next verse. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Some Bibles say lost your first love. Think of the bracket over the time. I'm going to warn you elders, be overseers, watch, guard from with, uh, among your own selves, those who come in, infiltrate you, teach you bad things. Your job is to shepherd those people with what we taught you about the true gospel. And then the epitaph in Revelation is, you did it really well on the front end, but you lost what you loved. I don't know if there's such a thing, but I imagine their heart sunk. When I read that many years ago for the first time seeing it, it it kind of bothered me. And I had to ask myself the question, Michael have you lost your first love? Paul speaks of love 107 times in his epistles. And about one-sixth of the time found in the book of Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians. And I have this pencil draft theory that when we have security of salvation, if there is a danger of that, it's that it doesn't really matter how I live, and that's because we've forgotten Ephesians two ten. You see, the, the, the criticism that people give to people like me who say "once saved, always saved." Well, then you can live like you want to live. Well, that's true. Paul warned about that in Romans chapter six, verse one: "Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase?" Man, never be. No way, Jose! In the Living Translation. No, you don't live that way just because you're forgiven. No, you don't live that way because 1 John 1, 9, your get-out-of-jail-free card. No, you don't live that way. But it makes sense why they would, it would, we would do that, right? Or is that just me? How many of us willingly did something we knew was sinful knowing we could ask for forgiveness? I have. Because we lost our love. You see, if you love someone, you're concerned about them, not yourself. True love is putting someone else's interest above yours. To love Cindy is to put Cindy ahead of me. For Cindy to love me is to put me ahead of her. I like that part of love. Their part's the problem, right? Love means dying to self. If you've lost the joy of your salvation, if you've lost the freedom of grace, if you've lost what it means to want to serve Christ, I came across Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamus had this thing on her site called 40 Evidences That You May Have Left Your First Love. I don't even want to read it to you. I don't like most of it. You go hours or days without having more than a passing thought of him. You don't have a strong desire to spend time with him. Study time and prayer is a burden or a duty, not a delight. Worship is formal, dry, lifeless. Private prayer is non-existent. Get the drift? If you love something, remember the firstborn child you held? Remember your first grandson or granddaughter you held? That's about as much love as there is. Your firstborn baby is just, firstborn is just what it is. Nothing like it. It's the first child ever born. And your first grandson or daughter is the first child ever born, right? And you fall into love with this creature that you can't explain, and you will do what? Anything for that child, that grandchild. That's your first love. Now, do we sustain that? Of course not. We can't. We're humans. We're sinful. We're selfish. We, we know too much. But I just want to leave you with a question. Do you love God? He loves you. Do you love Him? And I'm not saying you can measure it by a list like this. I'm not saying you should measure it by the way I would, quote, measure it. It's a terrible thing to even ask. But you're smart, men and women. Do you love Him? And would anybody know it? That's the book of Ephesians.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.